You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A cyber espionage campaign so far not attributed to any threat actor continues to prospect government and industry targets in Colombia. A new bit of malware is found in the SolarWinds backdoor compromise. Mimecast certificates are compromised in another apparent software supply chain incident. Ubiquity tells users to reset their passwords. A brief Capitol Hill riot update. Bitdefender releases a free dark side ransomware decryptor. Ben Yellen revisits racial bias in facial recognition software. Our guest is Jesse Markoff from Privitar on the trend toward chief people officers. And Europol announces the takedown of the dark market. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. Researchers at security firm ESET report a targeted malware campaign, Operation Spalax, which they say is active against targets in Colombia, which they evaluate as having some form of espionage as its goal. Both government organizations and private companies figure among the targets. The companies being hit have, for the most part, been in the metallurgical and energy sectors. The campaign uses rats, remote access trojans, and the threat actor uses what ESET characterizes as a large network infrastructure for command and control. The researchers count at least 24 different IP addresses that were in use during the second half of 2020, most of which probably represent compromised devices that function as proxies for command and control servers. The threat actor also uses dynamic DNS services, and this, in combination with the range of IP addresses, renders their operational infrastructure a moving target. ESET says, quote, We have seen at least 70 domain names active in this time frame, and they register new ones on a regular basis. End quote. While the researchers see some possible connections with campaigns against Colombia observed by Kianjin in 2018, and Trend Micro in 2019, ESET has insufficient evidence to offer even a tentative attribution. They can say that the targeting is confined to Colombia, that the threat actors use a complex and shifting infrastructure, and that whoever's behind Operation Spalox gets their malware from a third party. Security firm CrowdStrike late yesterday announced the discovery of a malware implant, Sunspot, associated with the sunburst backdoor that's afflicted SolarWinds Orion platform. They see Sunspot as malware that's been used since September 2019 to insert the sunburst backdoor into Orion software builds. 
Sunspot monitors running processes for those involved in compilation of the Orion product and replaces one of the source files to include the Sunburst backdoor code, and in doing so takes care to keep Orion builds from failing, lest the compromise betray itself to developers. CrowdStrike hasn't reached any firm conclusions about attribution. They're tracking the incursions as the stellar particle activity cluster. CrowdStrike says in their blog post, quote, The design of Sunspot suggests stellar particle developers invested a lot of effort to ensure the code was properly inserted and remained undetected. They added that the threat actors prioritized operational security to avoid revealing their presence in the build environment to SolarWinds developers, end quote. The details CrowdStrike provides in their account of Sunspot afford an interesting look at how a software supply chain attack is staged and maintained. So who's responsible for SolaraGate? The security firms who've been looking into it have been commendably cautious about the attribution. The U.S. government, however, part of whose business is, after all, to figure out who's out there doing the spying— has of course concluded that it's a foreign intelligence service, likely Russian in origin, but it hasn't so far pinned responsibility on any specific group or organization. Media reports have so far focused on either the SVR or the FSB, both successor agencies to the KGB, and associated with units who've received the cute Huggy Bear names of Cozy Bear or, more menacingly, Venomous Bear, in truth, the quiet, low profile of the operation doesn't seem to fit the GRU's noisy and assertive style, so no one has really seen Fancy Bear's paw prints in the operation. ZDNet has a quick scorecard of cautious and preliminary attribution by security companies. Microsoft and FireEye have called the actor UNC2452, Velocity calls it Dark Halo, and CrowdStrike, as we mentioned, is tracking it as Stellar Particle. Kaspersky said this week it's discerned code similarities between the backdoor threat actors installed in SolarWinds and another backdoor, Kazur, which had been used by the threat group Turla, also known as Venomous Bear and a lot of other names. But Kaspersky is also cautious and points out that imitation, false flags, common suppliers, and former employees now working for another outfit are alternative explanations for the code overlap. Whoever was behind the operation, it remains a very large and very damaging one. Mimecast warns that a sophisticated threat actor has compromised a Mimecast-issued certificate used to authenticate some of its products to Microsoft 365 Exchange Web Services. The products involved include Mimecast Sync and Recover, Continuity Monitor, and IEP, the incident affects about 10% of Mimecast's customers who've been asked to immediately delete the existing connection within their M365 tenant and re-establish a new certificate-based connection using the new certificate Mimecast has made available. The risk of compromise is that the unidentified threat actor could intercept email traffic. It's another form of software supply chain compromise, Reuters said late this morning that three distinct security researchers, speaking on condition of anonymity, told the wire service that they believed it likely that the same actor behind Solorigate was responsible for the Mimecast incident. IoT and Wi-Fi vendor Ubiquity yesterday disclosed a data breach, saying that its IT systems were accessed through a third-party cloud provider. 
Ubiquity recommends that customers change their passwords and enable two-factor authentication. The mob attack on the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday remains under investigation as investigators sort out responsibilities and identify rioters. A quasi-vigilante scraping and archiving of parlor data by private researchers has preserved much of that platform's traffic. This is being widely reported as a hack, but that seems incorrect. Apparently, the data collected were all publicly posted and available. The story is developing, and we'll have more as it emerges. In the meantime, we close with two bits of good news. First, Bravo Bitdefender, which has released a free decryptor for DarkSide ransomware, the work of a phony Robin Hood gang that claimed from a very high horse to donate part of its very large criminal take to various good causes. Good riddance to them, and again, bravo, Bitdefender. And second, good riddance to Dark Market. Europol announced this morning that an international law enforcement operation has taken down Dark Market, generally held to have been the Internet's largest dark web contraband market. German authorities took the lead in the investigation, with partners from Europol, Australia, Denmark, Moldova, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, and the USA. Dark Market's wares consisted mostly of drugs, counterfeit currency, pay card information, and malware. Bravo to Europol and everyone else who cooperated in the takedown. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
What's in a name, or specifically, what's in a title? And does it matter if we refer to someone as a janitor versus a sanitation engineer, a solutions architect versus a salesperson? How about titling someone the head of HR versus chief people officer? Jesse Markoff is chief people officer at data privacy firm Privitar, and she makes the case that, yep, in this case, it is a distinction with a difference. So HR is definitely an interesting topic because I think over the last really 45 years, but really the last 10 years, the space has changed quite a bit. And you you hear a lot of tech organizations calling it the people function or people operations versus human resources or HR. And I think that's rapidly increasing because of folks that are coming into the workforce, especially in the tech space. HR is typically known as essentially protectors of the top, or they act as a sifter or police um, sort of function. And I think that that's changing quite a bit. It's really focused more on engagement and how do you become the bridge between the company and employees, both from a communication perspective and just how do you enable them to do their job better and set clear goals around that. And so I think because of that shift in, in mindset, um, there's been more of a need for this role at the top and really the value that this this group brings to an organization, um, I think, is becoming more recognized, which is fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm in, also intrigued by the the choice of wording here to call the title chief people officer rather than chief of human resources. Um, you know, is is that a, a deliberate um, signaling of a of a shift in in the way that this position interacts with folks throughout the organization? The idea is the verbiage is changing because we're not just looking at our humans, our people as resources um, from a cost perspective. I think we very much are looking at our, our people as our biggest asset. And I think that you're seeing that in some of these titles. I mean, there's all kinds of really exciting and fun titles in this space um, that are specific to engagement um, tactics, which... At the end of the day, again, if people are sticking around for a few years, how do you get them to be at their best? Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a shift in just even what we're calling this space. And how do you make the case to organizations who who may not uh, put their HR folks at this level? What, what are the what are the key benefits that you see for them to to elevate this position this way? Well, I think it's really important to recognize, again, that when you think about your largest assets within the organization, it's your people. And I think collecting that information and data, I mean, at the same time, we're using people data all the time to make decisions. And so I think if, on one hand, if you can show the benefits of retaining really good talent and the actual business outcomes that are associated with that, it's really about showing the value And I think that that's really important that it goes beyond just what are we providing to employees from an engagement perspective, but how are we enabling people? How are we actually getting the most out of them and setting really clear expectations and really getting them jazzed to be a part of the organization? So I think if you can show really clear time to value, essentially, like you would a customer and a product, I think if you can kind of look at it through that lens, it's a no-brainer. That's Jesse Markoff from Privitar.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. You know, uh, on one of our recent Caveat episodes, you and I were talking about facial recognition software and the ongoing challenges there. You had highlighted an op-ed from the Washington Post that was uh, pointing out some of the limitations, how several uh, people had been unjustly accused based on inaccurate facial recognition software and how there is uh, undoubtedly a racial bias issue that's going on here. Yes, yeah, so... uh you know, we've had a few several high profile incidents in uh, the past year or so where facial recognition has uh, falsely identified individuals who have been arrested and prosecuted. And all of these individuals are, are black men. And so it's clear we have a pretty big institutional problem here where whatever is happening with facial recognition and artificial intelligence, it's misidentifying black men at a relatively high proportion. And this is a policy problem that we're going to have to fix kind of at all levels of government, starting with yeah. the technologists who are creating these algorithms, but then, you know, the local police departments that are using them. So it's becoming it's becoming a serious problem. I think the Washington Post op-ed was wise in saying, you know, we need to hit the pause button on the use of this technology until we figure out exactly what's going on here. Well, when I, I saw you sharing that story, uh, it uh, reminded me of, of another uh, study that I'd seen come by. This is from uh, from last year in 2020. It was a study done by Georgia Tech, and it was about um, basically self-driving cars, these automated vehicles uh, that do not do as good a job detecting pedestrians with darker skin as they do with pedestrians with lighter skin. Uh, the, the study from Georgia Tech found that consistently the these systems were between 4 and 10% less accurate when they encountered uh, images of human figures with the darker skin shades. Uh, so, you know, again, not to not to sound flippant, but as, as we said over on Caveat, not only uh, are you more likely to be uh, unjustly uh, charged based on facial recognition, you might get run over by a car. Yeah, I mean, another thing we talked about on Caveat is we have, you know, a long history in this country of institutional racism. And you'd think the tools of technology might be used to cut against, um, you know, some of these historical biases. And now we have two instances here where technology is actually making things worse uh, from a racial equity standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, this story or this study from Georgia Tech is, I think, important because of the tangible impact. I mean, if you have technology that's 4 to 10% less likely to identify uh, people with darker skin pigmentation. When we're talking about driverless cars, that means cars are going to be more likely to hit those types of pedestrians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the consequence that's going to happen here. And, you know, I think some of this is clearly human error. It's the training data set for this type of technology had used uh, roughly 3.5 times more examples of white individuals compared to uh, people with darker skin pigmentation. So, you know, it's, it's not exactly surprising that these driverless cars are better at avoiding, uh, you know, the type of faces that they've spent more time learning about, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, this is a policy problem and an institutional problem that we have to fix. Um, Yes, uh, you know, people with darker skin pigmentation might be a minority, but you have a large enough subsample that you can, um, you know, put together a robust data set and make sure that these types of discrepancies don't exist. 
You know, I, I'm no expert when it comes to uh, how you train an AI, uh, so I, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here. But I could imagine someone coming at this and saying, looking at the the, the racial breakdown of a community and saying, "Okay, we're you know we're 50 percent white, we're 30 percent African American, we're." Uh, you know, 15% Asian, whatever, however those numbers add up, whatever the reality is, and say, oh, I'm going to use those percentages on my training data. Um, and at first blush, that would seem to be a sensible thing to do, uh, but it's not because <laughs> what you end up with is, like in this case, you end up with a system that's that, a safety system that's not as good at protecting uh, your, your less represented uh, groups of people. Right. And I think now that we know that these uh, artificial intelligence systems have these biases, we have no excuses, you know, orchestrating machine learning. We have no excuses to, you know, not take racial equity into consideration anymore um, because we, we have this knowledge now. We know that this is a problem that exists. Uh, so right. I, we can no longer ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting uh, study. Again, it was from uh, Georgia Tech. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Remember the times of your life. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Maru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.